Father, we come before you right now, submitting ourselves to you as our Lord, seeking, God, your power in this service by your Spirit to speak through your word. God, may this morning, may we see you as you truly are. May we see your Son as the anointed, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, to whom everyone will give an account. God, we rejoice in your grace this morning. We rejoice in the salvation that's only in your Son. And this morning we seek to be more like him. To see him as he is. To be conformed to his image. We pray with all our hearts that you would be glorified. Through your word, through communion this morning. We want to lift up your name. In this service this morning. And we want to proclaim your great nation, your great name to the nations. Again, may you be glorified. May we be used as your servants. May we receive your word with all readiness of heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we refer to Christ as the Messiah, what do we mean? Messiah is the Hebrew word meshach, meaning to anoint or smear. An anointed one was one that had had oil poured on their heads as a picture that they had been chosen by God and set apart for a particular purpose. The equivalent in the New Testament is the word Christos or Christ also meaning anointed. It refers to a chosen one. And this practice was nothing new in first century Israel. This was common practice among the Jewish people. They were very familiar with it. It had been a part of their history for generations. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the practice of anointing with oil, through which three offices prophet, priest, and king were chosen and set apart by God. When a person was chosen for any of these offices, they were anointed with oil. It was poured upon their heads as a symbol of God's choosing, of being set apart unto God, set apart for divine service. We see this with prophets in the Old Testament. First Kings 19, Elijah is told to anoint his successor, the prophet, Elisha. In First Chronicles 16, God rebukes foreign kings saying, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Priests were also anointed. Some examples, Exodus 29, Aaron and those in the Aaronic priesthood were anointed as priests. In Exodus 40, priests were anointed as priests unto God. And finally, we see that kings were anointed set apart unto God. First Samuel 10, Saul is anointed. First Samuel 16, David is anointed. First Kings 1, 
Solomon was anointed. This anointing symbolized heavenly blessings on one that had been given a heavenly task. It pictured their unique position as set apart unto God for divine purposes, and it was not to be taken lightly, for no one must touch God's anointed. So again, this morning, we come to Psalm 2, where the Son of God is the anointed one. This is a Psalm of David in which we are challenged to choose between two kingdoms. We must turn from the sinful, dark, rebellious kingdom of this world, ruled by the devil himself, a kingdom whose end is destruction. And we must submit ourselves to the kingdom of God's dear Son, God's God's anointed, a glorious, heavenly, sovereign kingdom ruled by the Son of God, a king and his kingdom that will last forever. This king is unlike the kings of the world. This heavenly king is loving, protective, and gracious, and merciful to all who are in his kingdom, to those who are his children. But he makes war against all those outside his kingdom, and one day he will destroy all those in opposition to him. Last week we considered the rebellion of the nations in verses 1 through 3. David writes, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Here we see a detailed description of all peoples, all the nations of the world. The people are in an uproar. They're in a commotion. They're devising empty, vain things. Their leaders take their stand. They take counsel against the Lord and his anointed. They say, let us tear apart their fetters and cords. In other words, let us remove God's moral restraints so that we can serve ourselves, so that we can do our own thing. We can live as we choose. We can determine our own standards and our own destination. The people and their leaders may not agree on many things, but they are united in one thing. They are united in rebellion against the King of glory and his anointed. They take their stand. They take counsel. They rip off those moral restraints. And Acts fourteen sixteen tells us that God has permitted all the nations to go their own way for now. You see, this is a condition of all people outside the kingdom of God. This is not just some people, but all people. As we saw last week, and we've been reminded many times, we're all born dead in trespasses and sins, dead to the life of God, following the course of this world system, following the prince of the evil realm, following the spirit of disobedience, the spirit of rebellion. So in verses 1 through 3, we see that the people have taken their stand. They've spoken against the Lord and his anointed. But in verses 4 through 6, as we saw last week, God laughs, he scoffs, and then he speaks. And when God speaks, it demands, he demands our attention. We must listen. And so in verses 4 through 6, we see the scoffing of the Lord the speaking of the Lord, 
Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. We were reminded last week that God sits in the heavens. He's seated upon his throne. He is king, and he's in charge. And it's to him that everyone will give an account. He's not worried about the people's counsel against him. He's not intimidated by their rebellion. No, he's sovereign. He's seated. He's laughing with contempt at the rebellion of the nations. He scoffs at those who take counsel against him. How ludicrous that the weak, the helpless, the wicked of this world take their stand against him, the sovereign one, the very creator of heaven and earth. Notice his sovereign power is expressed by the psalmist in Psalm 33. Listen as I read. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. He is the one that is sovereign. We may think that we have control of our own lives that we can control our own destinies, but it is God who is sovereign. Verse 5, he will also speak to them in anger, literally the flaring of the nostrils, like a bull ready to charge. God is furious at them. He is set ablaze with righteous anger. Remember, God is angry with the wicked every day. The peoples of the earth are but sinners in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards preached. And what God is about to say will terrify them. And it should make us shake with fear as well. And this is what God speaks to the peoples. To all these standing in opposition to him. Verse 6, but as for me, the father says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. It is clear that this psalm first points to David, whom God had installed upon the throne of Israel. David was God's anointed. But this psalm ultimately points to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom everyone will give an account. He is the one that the New Testament reveals that this psalm is referring to. He is the seed of David who would be given an everlasting kingdom who will rule and reign with righteousness and justice. In Jeremiah 23, 5, the prophet proclaims, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a sprout, so to speak, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Now understand the mystery of the kingdom. The kingdom for us is now, and it's yet to come. Remember, many prophecies have a double fulfillment or a partial fulfillment followed by a complete fulfillment later. At Christ's first coming, he inaugurated a spiritual kingdom, and we who are born again are willing subjects of this kingdom. At his second coming, he will inaugurate the fullness of his kingdom on a new earth, I believe, and all remaining after the judgment will worship the king forever and ever. Yes, Christ inaugurated a spiritual kingdom at his first coming, Both Jesus and John preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Jesus declared in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. When the Pharisees questioned when the kingdom was coming, Jesus said this in Luke 17, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look here or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. In Matthew 12, the Pharisees accused Jesus Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. But this is what Jesus said was really happening in verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the power or by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come, aorist, indicative, past tense. It has come upon you right now. It's already come. So Christ rules and reigns from heaven and is today. He rules and reigns from heaven today. We could call it a spiritual kingdom, but it's real. But there's coming a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and only the righteous will enter his eternal kingdom. But even now, the Lord God is now seated on his throne in heaven. He is sovereign over all. There is no other but him. There's no other one to whom you and I will give an account. Today we come to the remainder of the psalm. And we notice in verses 7 through 9, the inheritance of the Son. In verse 6, God the Father speaks concerning his Son. That's going back to the last section. Verse 6, God the Father speaks concerning his Son. We just read it. But in verses 7 and 9, the Son speaks, describing a conversation with his Father. Verse 7, I, speaking of the Anointed One, will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Notice this anointed one is the son of God. This anointed one came as God in human flesh. He is the eternal son of God. There was never a time that he was not. But what does the father mean? Today I have begotten you. Well, I can tell you, it certainly does not mean that there was a time that the Father begot the Son in the sense of bringing him forth into existence. Jesus said, I am. He is the I am that I am, the eternal self-existing one. He is the eternal Son of God. They are co-equal and co-eternal. No question about it from Scripture. But Acts 13.33 tells us exactly what it means. After declaring the resurrection of Christ, Paul preached in Antioch and beginning in verse 32. Listen to the words. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Verse 33, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son Today I have begotten you. You see, God, as it were, birthed the Son right out of the grave, right out of the earth. He rose by the power of God. He rose in victory. He rose with the keys to death and hell. He rose as the firstborn among many brethren. He rose as king of all the nations, king over those who submit to him in his kingdom, but he's king over all. He not only died a substitutionary death, 
paying for the sins of his people. He rose victorious over sin, death, and the grave. And then he ascended to the right hand of God, bringing with with him those that he purchased for God from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. He has gifted them. We saw it in Ephesians. He's gifted them with every spiritual blessing. And now he reigns from heaven as king of kings and lord of lords. He was birthed out of the earth, begotten out of the earth. He is the ascended, glorious king of heaven. In light of his victory over the grave, notice what the father says to his son in verse 8. Ask of me, ask of your father in heaven, and I will surely, I will certainly give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. A loving father desires to give good gifts to his son. A loving father takes delight in giving the family inheritance to his son. And of course, the firstborn son received a double inheritance. But notice the conversation here between the father and the son. It's an inter-Trinitarian conversation in which we see intimacy and communion between God the Father and God the Son. But what does the father give to his son as an inheritance? All the nations, all the peoples, even to the ends of the earth. But this is not referring to the ecclesia, the elect those chosen out of the world. It's all the nations of verses 1 through 3, all who are in rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. But notice what Christ will do to the nations. Notice what the Father commands the Son to do to the nations. You shall, verse 9, break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This doesn't fit well with American Christianity a Christianity that diminishes the holiness and justice of God. Here we have a graphic picture of what the Son will one day do to the nations, to those who are in rebellion against the Father of glory and his anointed, to those who stand in opposition to the Son's reign, to those who have cast away all moral restraints. He will break them, verse 9, with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. He is not inheriting them here to save them. He is inheriting them to break them and shatter them with the authority and command of his father. Christ with a rod of iron will shatter the nations like brittle, frail, helpless pottery. In Revelation 20, at the end of the age, Gog and Magog will gather the nations for war to fight against the saints. And then fire will come down from heaven and devour them all. Then all the living and the dead will stand at the great white throne judgment, and anyone's name who was not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. The writer of Hebrews says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Folks, Christ is king, and there is no other. There is none other to whom every man will give an account. We are accountable to him, and he's holy and righteous and just. He is a God of wrath, and he will judge. It is his character. It is his nature. He is faithful to who he is. Although the nations are cooperatively rebelling against the Son, although the peoples 
plot vain things, although the kings of the earth stand taking counsel against the Lord and his anointed, although the nations have cast away all moral restraints, although the God of heaven laughs at them and holds them in derision, although the Son has been given all authority and will crush the nations, the Lord offers grace to all who take refuge in him. David now speaks on behalf of God in verses 10 through 12. And here we have a call to repentance. It's a genuine invitation of grace, is it not? Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, he's speaking to these in rebellion against him and his son. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment or wake up, we could say. Take warning, O judges of the earth. You see, judgment is coming. The son is about to execute judgment. This is a warning of grace. This is a call to repentance. But what is the call? What is the command? He says in verse 11, <coughs> excuse me, verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. See, we are to bow before this risen one, the one that's birthed out of the grave. Surrender your life to him. Worship him with reverence for he's king. The father says, I have birthed him out of the grave. I have placed him on the throne of glory and all nations will be shattered by him. Yet he invites us to worship the Lord with reverence, to rejoice with trembling. The reality that those who are born in this world in rebellion against the Lord of glory, the Holy One of Israel, are invited to worship the Lord with reverence should cause us to rejoice with trembling before this one, this one with all authority, all dominion, all power. We must repent. We must stop worshiping the gods of this world. We must stop worshiping created things, things that are temporal. We must stop worshiping our own selfish desires, stop worshiping the passions of our lust, repent and worship the Lord with reverence. Fall on your knees, fall on your face before him and submit to him as your saving Lord. Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. You see, mercy is being extended to us in these verses this morning. Mercy is extended to all who bow before him and worship this saving Lord. Verse 12, do homage to the son, literally kiss the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. But what does it mean to kiss the sun in history? When a king defeated another nation, that nation's king would be drugged, sometimes drugged into the palace to the foot of the king. And that defeated king down on his hands and knees representing his people was to kiss the feet of the victorious king who sitted who's sitting on his throne. It was an acknowledgement of the enthroned king's triumph and sovereignty. It was an acknowledgement of his own defeat. It was an acknowledgement of submission to the king that now ruled your nation and an acknowledgement of his mercy that he hadn't destroyed you. David writes, kiss the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. 
if the defeated king failed to kiss the feet in submission, this triumphant king, if he failed to submit to his lordship, the king would surely become angry and he would perish in his way. It's the same with the anointed king in heaven. If you fail to bow your knees and confess him as Lord at the judgment, he will execute perfect justice upon you. I want to make that clear. If you fail to bow your knees and confess him as Lord now at the judgment, he will execute perfect justice on you in light of his sovereignty, in light of his perfect holiness. And his justice will give you exactly what you deserve. It will give you what you've earned. Every sin will be paid for. Every vain thought will be judged. God's patience will have ended. His mercy will have run out. And God will crush all outside his kingdom. He is a holy God. He is righteous. That's not what American Christianity preaches. But it's what the word of God preaches. It's what it proclaims. On that great day, you will bow before him. If you have not now, you will that day. You will bow before him and confess him as his Lord, as your Lord. But his mercy will have run out. And you will be cast alive into the lake of fire where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. The psalmist said in Psalm 7, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Verse 12, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has already bent his bow and made it ready. As David proclaims, as one who had received God's mercy, as one who had bowed in worship to a greater king than himself, a far greater king, he ends this psalm, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. How happy are all who take refuge in him. See, there's no greater joy than to know that your sins are forgiven, that you have been welcomed into the kingdom of God's dear son, that he is your saving Lord. He is the sovereign one, and he rules your life. Now I want to take you back to where we began. In the Old Testament, the prophets, priests, and kings were anointed for divine purposes. But the prophets were just men. They were sinners like you and I. Only when God spoke through them were their words inspired. The priests not only anointed for the sins of the people, or sacrifice, I should say, for the sins of the people, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. And all the sacrifices never really took away sin. They only provided a temporary covering until the real sacrifice could come. The kings had imperfect kingdoms because they were imperfect kings and their kings were only temporary. But the scriptures reveal that Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He is our prophet. And as our prophet, he always spoke the truth because he is the truth. He is the fulfillment of all those messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Fulfillment of all those shadows and types and pictures and Christophanies. Or he was in the Old Testament in Christophanies. He is our priest, lived without sin. 
offered an eternal covering for sin. His death by the shedding of blood fully and eternally and perfectly took away sin for those who believe. He is our king, is the seed of David that has been given an everlasting and eternal kingdom. And he reigns with righteousness and justice. And one day he will return to establish a kingdom of perfect righteousness and justice. What a Messiah. What an anointed one. The one for whom the children of Israel had waited so long had come. The fullness of time had come. And most Jews missed him. Most Jews rejected him as Messiah. Let me ask you this. Will you? Will you reject this one? Will you let him pass you by like those that the writer of Hebrews talks about in chapter 2 that drift as if they're drifting down a river and there's a dock on the side and they drift past that dock, that place of safety? The writer warns, if every transgression and disobedience of the law received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Will you neglect this great salvation? Will you neglect to kiss the feet of this king, of this savior? If you fail... If you let it pass you by, you will not escape. You will be one of the ones that are crushed by God's holy wrath in judgment. Worship the king like a defeated ruler. Kiss his feet in submission, for he is the conquering king. He is the Lord of all. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the command. What will you do with that? What are you to do? Romans 10, Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Are you desperate this morning to find rest from your guilt? Are you desperate to find safety from the coming judgment? Are you desperate to find rest for your weary soul? Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, there is no rest apart from the arms of this saving king. The one that is righteous and just and holy and a God of wrath has offered grace to you this morning. If you don't know him, he's offered grace to you and those who come and kiss his feet, so to speak, bow before him in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, are saved and enter into this glorious kingdom. I know most of us have bowed before him. We have trusted him as our king, as our Lord, our Lord and Savior. If you have done that, if you worship this king, if you've kissed his feet, if you've submitted to his lordship, then you have communion with him through faith. We celebrate this communion each Lord's Day. We remember his death through which we've been rescued out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son. We celebrate 
looking forward to the day that we will celebrate together with him in his eternal kingdom. We will partake with him. Jesus said, this celebration is for those who have entered his kingdom, who have have kissed the feet of the Son. It's specifically for those in the kingdom, not for anyone else, not for those outside the kingdom, not for those in rebellion against him. It's for those in his kingdom and who are walking in obedience to the Son, who confess their sins and worship the Lord in reverence. We remember the Lord's death with two elements. The unleavened bread represents Christ's sinless body that was broken through which we enter or have entered into God's presence without guilt. Entered as children of God, wearing the very righteousness of God's Son. The wine represents the blood of Christ that washes away all sin. The bitterness represents God's justice and wrath, but its sweetness represents his abundant blessing. So we could say that the wine pictures that Jesus Christ took God's wrath that we might have his blessing. So I challenge you now in light of what you heard this morning. I challenge you to examine yourself. May we never forget, yes, he's Savior. He took our place. He bore our sins. He was crucified, taking the wrath of God that we earned, that his elect earned, his chosen. But he is king. We must worship him in reverence. This is not something we take lightly. We would say it's serious business. He is king, and we will give an account to him. So deal with any sin. Deal with your heart this morning. Deal with that issue of reverence, that fear that we should have of who he is. May we not take this celebration lightly, for even the celebration is serious before God. And he's promised judgment upon even believers who partake in an unworthy manner. So may we, if you're a believer, may we together examine ourselves and then so let us eat of the bread and drink of the wine, remembering the Lord's death till he comes. Let's pray together.